Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Horizon. We're so glad you're all here with us. If you're able to, would you please stand on up and join us as we worship together. Come on. Sleep arises, we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Sleep arises, we
It cannot hide the light. Whom shall I fear? You crush the enemy underneath my feet. You are my sword and shield. No troubles linger still. Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever. He is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side.
Amen. Well, you may be seated here this morning. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. You know, a couple months ago, we had some baptisms that took place out on the terrace uh, one Saturday morning. I was fortunate enough to be a part of that, uh, to lead worship before all the baptisms. Uh, and it was just an incredible morning, a morning I'll never forget. Testimony after testimony and stories and the ways that God is changing lives right here at Horizon. And the last person to be baptized that morning was a guy named Paul Conroy. And uh, Paul just shared an incredible story, his, his faith journey that God has taken him on. He shared in the ways that scripture, God's word, has helped to transform his life. So we'd love to show that to you here this morning as a reminder to, to all of us, no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter even how old you are, God can transform your life to make you into a new creation. Let's watch. I have all the thanks to give to many folks that are here, in particular uh, Horizon, as I mentioned to you earlier, you really live up to your mission, and the mission statement is to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible. Since I'm an older person, I didn't know if a new, an older person could change, and there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and I related to, to him, not in an arrogant way, but him representing a traditional liturgical religion. And uh, he came, he was a ruler of the Jews, and from what I understand, he was like, uh, protected the code, mm -hmm. a rule follower. And uh, my prior experience was I could never live up to the rules. Mm. And we can't. Right. And uh, so he came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? <laughs> can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So I thank you so much for helping me come here. Most importantly, my wife, Anne, who's always been ahead of me. <laughs> and I'm trying to catch up. Jesus is here with us. If uh, you saw him, what would you be most thankful for? Just in the last couple of years, what's been most meaningful to you in God's work in your life? Having given a, a path a faith journey and a conviction, and, and most importantly, through friends and family. Mm. Well, in one sense, what you just shared with us is the old antics, can old dogs learn new tricks, right? <laughs> but there's a Bible verse that's even more meaningful. It says that in a very spiritual way. It says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. Mm. All things have become new. And baptism is a picture of exactly that. When you go under the water, old things have passed away. You've been forgiven out of what you have done, but what you are doing, what you will done, all shame is covered, all guilt is covered. For in Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Do you believe in God the Father who made the heavens and earth? Yes, I do. Do you believe in Jesus' death that paid for all of your sins? Yes, I do. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit who lives in you now? Yes, I do. 
I baptize you now. Anne's going to join me. We'll grab right here, Anne. Baptize you now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for that reminder of, of seeing Paul's baptism, just knowing that you are a God that transforms us. You're not only a God that formed us from the dust, but that you are transforming lives through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would continue to speak to us here this morning as we study your word. It's in Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen. Hi, I'm Darcy Bean. And I'm Cindy Weininger. Our company, Stretch Strategic Leaders, has been around for a number of years. Cindy and I have been doing this work with leaders for about 20. We've worked with hundreds of organizations, and our purpose is to help leaders stretch to the next level, and most importantly, enjoy it. I know, we absolutely love what we do. So we're excited. We're gonna bring our personal strategic planning program to the Horizon women who are trying to balance life a career, family, me time, which we enjoy me time. And we're excited about customizing it to really fit for Horizon women. I have been attending Horizon with my family for about 10 years, and I just enjoy every time we're here, the messages, the music, the time to connect. And we're excited to share this program with you. We have taken what we do with organizations and put it into a game plan of how do you do strategy for your life? And this is a great opportunity for us to get to do it in terms of on a spiritual level as well. We have four individual parts and we'll come together on Thursday night and Saturday morning. Now on Thursday night and Saturday morning, they're gonna be the same message and teaching every week. And so you can come to one or the other and we'd love for you to come to all four uh, over the course of the four weeks, but that is up to you and your lifestyle. But for us, this gives us an opportunity to help you look at what's going on in your life. And instead of being at work and focusing on the kids and everybody else, you'll get to turn inward for a little while and join with other women and join with us. And we're really excited about this. So our first goal is to connect. Our second goal is to eat. So I'm, I, we're going to have food. Uh, we've, we were going to have a dinner on Thursday nights and a nice breakfast on Saturdays. We're gonna be in groups each time that you come. We hope that you change tables so you can meet some other people. Connection is a big piece of this program. We're all so busy, you know, taking some time to do that. We also wanna inspire each other. Uh, we're gonna use kind of our learning in the program as a way to do that. Uh, we really have, wanna have fun, we wanna laugh, we wanna just relax and, and grow together. I mean, again, our purpose is to help people stretch so they enjoy it. And I really hope that you join us for this program. I know you'll enjoy it. Yes, we're so looking forward to it and meeting new faces and sharing friendships. All the information that you need is on the Horizon website, so check that out. We also will be around. I mean, I'm here certain Sundays. Feel free to ask me or any of the Horizon staff can give you some inf more information about the program. Look forward to seeing you there. Well, I know many of us have talked about how hard it is to connect, you know, in general, let alone with COVID. And so if you've tr been trying to find ways to kind of hang out with people, get to know some people, put a name with a face, have a few people to church uh, that you've just built a deeper friendship with, we're trying to create opportunities for that. So if you're a woman, you'd like to join that group, uh, we'd love to have you sign up and be part of that. We've got men's groups coming up with Ken Kington later on. Uh, many of us were here dunking me in the dunk tank last night uh, at our family event with hundreds of people on campus. We've got a comedy night coming up in September. 
So we're just looking for ways to help all of us connect and meet people as you would like and as you feel needed. So again, lots of opportunities coming our way, and we invite you to be part of that. And today we're diving into the book of Numbers again, and this passage is so unique that I thought it might be helpful to review where we are in the book before we kind of untangle it. And then next week we're going to look at a passage I consider the hardest passage in the whole Bible. I've been working on it for three months, and I'll give you my best shot at it uh, next week. So, So let's start with where we've been in Numbers as we unpack this passage together. If you remember, we began months ago remembering that there were three main major wildernesses in the book of Numbers. The wilderness of preparation, Sinai. The wilderness of testing, where a whole generation did not trust God, and that generation is going to die, and their children, the next generation, will go into the promised land. Then we move to the third wilderness, the Moab wilderness, which was their temptations before they get into the promised land, and now this new generation is ready to go in. But this last section, chapter 22 to 36, has really divides in two. And you may have felt that the last couple weeks. Instead of talking specifically about temptation, which is chapter 22 to 25, we really moved on here in these last couple chapters, 26 to 36, to talk about the children of the wilderness. These are the children who are going into the promised land with very specific instructions. Here are the offerings to do, here are the feasts to celebrate, and here's how this land's going to be divided based on the, the different tribes and how you're to inherit that and how you're to possess that. So that's kind of the section we're in here. It's related to how this group is going to inherit and operate in the promised land. I think that's helpful because these instructions are about the offerings, the inheritance, and the law for this next generation regarding the promised land. So keep that in mind, because I'm going to read the passage we're in today in Numbers 30. Some parts are going to be self-evident. Wow, that makes sense. Some parts are going to be like, is that chauvinistic? Like, does that apply today? Wow, I don't know if I... Other parts are going to be just confusing. We're going to try and untangle it before we apply it. All right? Here's the passage. So Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel going to the Promised Land. He says, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone makes a vow to the Lord... Or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. But if a woman, specifically a young girl, makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house, she's still a youth, and her father hears that vow or agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all the vows she makes shall stand. And every agreement with which she has bound herself will stand. But if her father overhears her on that day, that he hears that vow, and none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand. So he hears it, overrules her. And the Lord will release her from that, because the father has overruled her. If indeed she takes a husband, while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she binds herself, and her husband hears it, and he makes no response to her on that day he hears it, then her vows shall stand. And her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on that day that he hears it, uh, he shall make void her vow by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her from that bond. Now any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she bound herself shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself in agreement with an oath, and her husband heard it and made no response, prior to him dying apparently, um, and did not overrule her, then her vows shall stand, and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand." 
However, if her husband, the deceased one, truly made them void on the day he heard them, that whatever proceeds from her lips concerning her vows, it shall stand. Her husband shall, has made them void, and the Lord will release her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it, her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response, whatever to her from that day to day, then he confirms her vows through his silence, and all the agreements will bind her to stand. He confirms them because he made no response on that day that he heard him. All right, like, thank you. I really I appreciate that. I'm really going to use that this week at, at, at work and home. Thank you. In fact, it's probably going to start a fight in the car on the way home, Chad. Thank you for reading that. All right, you know, often Christians can be accused of haphazardly either ignoring passages of the Bible or like you pick one verse to apply and other pieces not to apply. It just seems like it's very haphazard. So one of the tools we're going to dig in, we're you know your, your teacher used to say, show your homework? I'm going to try and show the homework up front, and then I'm going to show you all the application that will be very clear in how we apply it today. So this is a tool I came across in grad school I found very helpful. When you're interpreting a passage, you need to look at their town, what's going on in their town, specific things in that culture, in that context that God's speaking to, and how is that different from our town? So there might be a universal bridge or a, a truth and a truth you're looking for is something that God says is true for all people at all times and all places. However, it might express itself differently in one culture, and it might express itself differently in another culture. And that's the challenge of interpreting the Bible. You're trying to find out what is God's universal truth that applies to everybody, and not necessarily take one cultural construct of that application and apply that same cultural construct to a different context or a different application. So that's what we're trying to figure out. And in doing that, you want to figure out, like, how wide is the river? As I just told you, we're talking about millions of people about to go into the promised land, and the context has been vows related to, vows to the Lord, and specifically to inheritance of the land. Well, you and I are very different from that. So we need to keep in mind the context of that before we find the principle and apply it to our context. There's a different language difference. They're in the covenant of law. We're in the covenant of grace. There are a million people moving to land. We are not even talking about that. So let's unpack those different stages together and see if we can figure out together the principle. All right, first let's look at their town. First of all, in their culture, they have a, a patriarchal system where men and husbands were the executors of generational family estates. So part of these vows related to inheriting the land is because everything about the system, second point, the Jewish system was set up based on family sons tracing back to Jacob's sons. I mean, literally, the chunks of the land are named after the sons. It's Benjamin's land. It's Reuben's land. It's um, the different 12 tribes of Israel. And so when somebody makes a vow and says, hey, sure, I'll give you my family farm, uh, that vow represents generational wealth and it's being passed through that system as they're going into the promised land. All right, next, the river. Big difference between what's happening in their culture and how we're trying to apply it in our culture. Number one, we don't have a patriarchal or family system of government that God has set up for them. So that makes a difference. Number two, we're living under grace, not law. Not sure how that applies, but we're going to have to at least keep that in mind as we look at the text. Number three, they lived in an oral culture in regard to contracts. So if you said, I'll give you my land, we don't call the lawyers to paper it over, that was the contract. So when you say something, it was considered an oral contract. So God's basically giving you contract law on what we say matters, and here's kind of a, a, a one-day waiting period before it goes live. 
We live in a very different culture. It's a written culture with lots of legal documents and lots of lawyers before stuff goes live. Number one, we are not a group of millions of people trying to start a new government in a land. So however we diagnose this, we've got to keep in mind the different cultures here and the different sides of the bridge. All right, our town. In the New Testament, husbands are commanded to be uh, leaders, but servant leaders of their family, but they are not executors of generational land. So that makes it very different however the application is here. Next, our society doesn't take oral statements or vows as binding permanent legal agreements like they did back then. And we and our kids, just like the, the kid in the passage, we can be rash, we can make decisions quickly, we can say things that we wish we hadn't said, and we do need people to guide us or offer wisdom to us in case we speak too quickly. Does that make sense? So that's how you try and say, whatever the truth is here, express itself one way in that culture, and here's our culture. How would whatever he's saying express itself in our culture? So here's my best take. And what you're looking for in that universal bridge is something that's true for all people at all times and all places. So in this case, here's the things that came out of the text I think apply in any culture at any time. Number one, silence is consent. If you see something... If you don't um, override that, if you don't speak up, then by the end of the day, it's binding. You've consented to that. That decision of not speaking up is a decision. Two, the home is designed to be a place to instruct and guide our relationships. If you're a son or daughter and you make a rash decision, you know, we need moms and dads to speak into our life and say, hey, hey, let's think about that before you make that decision. Next, universal principle, we need wise people in our lives to help us when we are inexperienced or rash. And I think the main principle that is crystal clear, it's said over and over and over and over in this passage is, our words and our commitments matter. They will stand. They will stand. If a widow makes it, it commands. If a divorcee makes it, it stands. If a husband makes it, it stands. If a wife makes it, it stands. If a child makes it, it stands. Here's some exception clauses. A little time to reconsider. But in general, God says our words and our commitments matter. So we're going to take out of this box those principles and then say, now let's try and apply that universal principle to our life and our time. All right? Another way that can help you figure out, like, what's still applied then that applies now is if it's repeated in the New Testament. So it's like, well, if it's repeated in the Old Testament under the covenant of law and it's repeated again in the New Testament, it probably applies in both ways. And Jesus says that. I think that's kind of the main principle here. How we weigh our words is how we're going to be weighed by God. Do you weigh your words? Do they matter when you say something? We say it in our culture like your word is your bond. But Jesus is going to basically say that how we weigh our words and our vows is how God's going to weigh us. And he's going to say that in a very unique way. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It applies to all these things spoken about in Numbers, but it's reiterated now in the New Testament, so we know it also applies to us today. Here's how he says it. Again, you've heard it said of old, you shall not swear falsely, nor shall you perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, now you don't need to swear at all. You don't need to swear by heaven or by God's throne or by the earth or by its foothold, not by Jerusalem nor the great city of the great king. Well, one more thing. And you shall not swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, he mentions this specifically because the rabbis took this passage from Numbers and said, well, if you swear by God, you've got to keep your commitment. If you swear by hmm, 
the hairs on your head, you don't have to keep the commitment because some people's hair is falling out, so it's not as strong of a commitment. But if you swear by your head, you do need to keep the commitment. If you swear by the, by the temple, you got to keep half of it. But if you swear by the gold on the altar in the tabernacle, it's the equivalent of, I don't have to do it because my fingers were crossed. It was this whole system of, I can keep some of my word, but not some of my word. It all was based on this, lab, this labyrinth of decision-making matrices that the Pharisees and Sadducees came up with to say, when do we keep our word and not? And Jesus says, nonsense. None of this, the swearing by the city counts, and this one doesn't count, the head counts, but not the hair counts, no. Jesus reiterates this principle. Here's what I want you to be people of if you're following me. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. Jesus wants us to make sincere words and commitments, which means when we speak, people should bank on it. If you tell somebody you're going to be there at the party, don't go someplace else because something better came up. Don't tell someone you're going to be there at an event and, and then don't tell them, hey, something came up, and at least apologize at your word, you didn't keep your word. Hey, something came up, we're not going to be able to meet that deadline, but because of some other things, we're going to be able to have it by the next day. We want to be people of our word, is Jesus' point. People without wax. That's what the word sincere means. Back in the uh, Roman days, they would build statues, and you'd hire somebody to make your statue, and often in the middle of chiseling away, there would be a crack. Oh! Imagine getting almost done with Michelangelo, who's a David, and all of a sudden there's a crack in the arm or crack in the chest. You're like, I don't want to start over. This is expensive. This is timely. So what they would do is they would take the cracks and put wax in it, and they would mix in some dust from the stone, and so it would look like it was real and it was solid. But then you take the statue outside and the sun would start beating down and like drip, 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 drip. And he's like, oh my goodness, look at all the cracks in that thing. God is saying, I want you to have words that matter, vows that matter, that they are sincere, they are without cracks. I want you to aim at that. And when there are cracks, I want you to apologize for it. I want you to, to admit it and I want you to try and make it right. So that's the idea here. So, because it's reiterated in the New Testament, we know for sure this main idea, our vows and our words matter, is what's going on both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, let's take three of those principles and try and apply it now, all right? The first one seems to come out of the text is, in the very first words, is make your mouth matter. Put weight on the words that come out of your mouth. Well, I told them I could come because I didn't want to hurt their feelings that I didn't come. Well, did it hurt their feelings that you didn't come? Okay, well, <laughs> better to hurt their feelings up front and be honest than to hurt their feelings and not keep your commitments. That's kind of the idea he's getting at here. Moses said to these children about to go into the land, if, and notice the word if, you're not required to make vows. But if you do make a vow, it needs to matter. Make a vow to someone else in marriage, a vow to someone else. In baptism, you saw earlier, when you make a vow of saying, hey, I want to give this, or I'm going to serve this, or I'm going to be there. If you make a vow, and you don't have to, but make sure you weigh your words. When you make a vow to the Lord, or you swear an oath to bind yourself by some agreement, whatever it is, don't break your word. Instead, do everything that proceeds out of your mouth. Make your mouth matter. The word here for oath, very similar to the word for vow. It's almost an identical word in Hebrew. And it literally, a vow is a commitment to do something or to give something. I think that's why this chapter is right after a whole chapter about feasts, a whole chapter about offerings, and a whole chapter about 
inheritance. Because it's speaking about big, important vows related to inheritance of generational wealth in the new land and related to vows at these very specific times you would vow to the Lord which you want to give of your coming harvest. So make your mouth matter. Now the word vow is really interesting because if you jump back to Numbers chapter 6, there's an example of how a vow can be both a noun and a verb. Talking about the Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow was a time that you would choose to not drink alcohol for a time, not touch anything dead for a time, or let your hair grow out. Samson was a famous Nazarite. And in this passage about making a vow, it uses it as both a verb and as a noun in Hebrew. Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, when a man or woman vows, same Hebrew word, consecrates an offering to take the vow, same word as a noun, of a Nazarite to separate himself from the Lord. So a vow is something you do, it's the act of doing it, and it's the thing you do itself. So I think it's getting at this idea of God wants us to be people who do things, yes be yes, no be no, and when we make those vows, we, we, we see them, we weigh them as sacred and important. About 10 years ago when I was doing some publishing stuff related to some stuff we were doing as a church, came across several different publishers. This one publisher was really interesting because this is a senior guy in the company, and they had recently fired, let go, uh, whatever the line is between quitting and, and firing, you know, it's always kind of blurry. But this person had left them, kind of a middle manager they had, and made a lot of rash, bad financial decisions for the company. However, after he left, a third-party vendor came, had an email that said, hey, this guy no longer works here, but we got an email that says that they had committed to this amount of purchases on this amount of time. I hope you're going to honor that. But there was no lawyer, there was no contract, it was simply an email. And the executive was like, listen, this is why we got rid of this guy, making these kind of dumb decisions. We don't legally have to honor that contract. But they had written in their uh, core values as an organization a statement like this. It was just shocking to me. We honor our commitments as a company, even if it's difficult, costly, or hard. So they chose to honor the commitment with this third-party vendor, even though the guy who made the vendor hadn't got to the legal contract, and the guy was gone. But because they had a core value, we are going to honor our commitment. It's difficult, it's costly, it's hard, but we want to be known as people of our word. It really struck me. It's not always possible, and certainly there is a place in our culture for, for legal documents and checking everything. Nothing wrong with any of that. But the principle behind that is, do we make our words matter? The second thing that seems to come out of this text is that indecision is a decision. And we've all been in a place where we said, honey, you make the decision. No, you make the decision. Because if the other person makes a decision, what happens? They get blamed if it goes wrong. But this seems to say that your indecision, I don't know if we should go or I don't know if we should go, I don't know if we should go, your indecision is a decision. Right? He mentions that about the father and the husband. If you don't decide, it's a decision. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord, specifically this is a child here, so if a child, in this case, in this example it's a woman, but it's a child basically, if a child makes a vow to the Lord and binds him or herself by agreement while uh, she's in her father's house, in her youth, she's a child, And if her father, somebody wiser than her, somebody who's in charge of the household, hears that vow, sure, you can have our farm. 
Honey, don't give away grandma's farm and dad's farm to the next door neighbor that you just made mud pies with, right? I mean, this is not, this is not a good idea. So dad or mom, they overhear this vow made by a child by which she's bound herself, and her father holds his peace, indecision, doesn't say anything. Well, if you don't say anything, God even counts the words of our children with weight. So all her vows are going to stand, and every agreement with which she's bound herself will stand. Men, women, children, what you say matters, and God takes it very seriously. And God knows that when you're young, you have a tendency to be rash, not in all the consequences. So we also need to be wise enough to say, let me check and get some feedback before maybe I jump into this. And you've seen that, right? You've had people in your life, times in your life, that if you had had a coach, if you had had a boss, if you had had a friend, if you had had uh, a father who had maybe helped steer you, you would have saved yourself a lot of pain, financially, relationally. So I think there's two applications here. Indecision is if I see somebody in my household that I love, and it's not easy to give feedback to your family, and the older they get, it's harder for them to take feedback, but how do you as much as possible say, I don't want my indecision to be a decision? I'm going to reject passivity, and I want to try and lean in and get some help here. Even if they don't hear it, how can I as nicely as possible at least try and be a voice of reason? On the other side, I think there's some humility here that there's a little child in all of us. That you don't grow out of your rashness. You don't grow out of your, your lack of wisdom. Sometimes you develop out of it, but you don't chronologically grow out of it. So how can I, at whatever age I am, check with wiser people than me before I make a decision? Do you think I should do this? Is this a good idea? I had a guy one time came up to me. He just bought this brand new car. And he was just so excited about it. So I was entering into his joy. And just, oh, tell me about that. What features does it have? And show me all that. But what I was really thinking is, why did you buy this car? We've been talking for last year about all your financial problems. What a great deal. Look at all the money I saved. Can you afford the payment? That's what I'm thinking. But I wasn't consulted before the purchase. So I just entered the joy during the purchase. But what I really thought is, the reason you're in this financial crunch for the last 10 years or five years is because you make decisions like this and don't ask people you care about, is this a good decision? And I walked away from that and went, well, if, if that's true of them, it's probably true of me. Do I have people in my life that I can run ideas past when I have a tendency to be rash or I have a tendency to be unwise? How about you? Are you humble enough to ask for advice? And are you bold enough as a friend to say, listen, I know you spent a lot of time on Facebook recently with some old college friends. I'm not sure that's going to be best for your marriage. Hey, you've talked an awful lot about your marriage problems out loud with other people. I'm not sure that that's the wisest thing to do. Thirdly, I think this is the main principle of the whole text, which is we need to make vows that stand. And kind of develop on what we just read, we need to make a response if we see somebody being unwise. If at all possible, we need to make a response to help people being unwise. He gives several case studies in this. Number one, make a response if someone's rash or unwise. If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response. So before we talked about a dad, now we're talking about a husband. When a dad makes no response, even when the pers- his wife is being rash or being unwise, then her vows stand. She's bound by it. What she says matters to God. Her vows matter to God. 
Now, I think this example is a husband and a wife, the wife being the, the rash one. It works the other way, too. I was reading an article this week about uh, Ryan Reynolds. He's the guy who plays Deadpool and, and Free Guy and other things. So he was talking about a marriage uh, situation going on with he and his wife right now. He sits down with his wife. He says, honey, I got, I got bad news, and I got really bad news. What do you want to hear first? She says, well, how about the bad news? He says, well, the bad news is I've been DMing directly with somebody. Direct message? Is he having an affair? What's going on? All right, so you're direct messaging with somebody. What happened? Well, I was talking to a guy who owns a, a football team in Wales, and we went back and forth for a while, and I chose to buy a football team in Wales for us. Without consulting me? Yes, without consulting she said He said the two of them are still going through and working through this, right? Because, man, if you're going to make a major vow that affects the finance of the whole household, you should consult with the family unit, right? The kids giving away the, 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 the inheritance for your children's 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 children. Your spouse is making a rash vow related to, this is the family farm for generations. This is the land God gave to the whole tribe. So that's the idea here. So be careful making rash vows when you haven't consulted with the people that, in your family that it applies to. The second thing is that uh, we need to make vows that stand. Two case studies here. If a husband overrules her on that day and hears it, hey, listen, we need to talk before we give away the family farm. He shall make void her vow that she took, that she uttered with her lips, in which God says, listen, 24-hour notice to think about this before you close on the loan kind of thing. I'll release you from that. you got 24 hours to kind of go, wow, I, I kind of got sucked in there. Also, any vow of a widow or divorced woman by which she bound herself will stand against her. Meaning, you made a decision, now your husband's dead. He was kind of the one on the will related to the generational wealth. But the decisions you make stand. You don't get to undo it now that, uh, now that you, some time has passed. However, she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement or with an oath, and her husband heard it, if he made no response, there it is again, to her, and did not overrule it, then all her vows stand, and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. And I think this, again, is the universal principle for all of us. Make your vows stand. Weigh the power of your words. What we say should matter. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't say things that aren't true. Don't say things you're not going to do. And when you do, because we all do, fall short of not doing what you said you're going to do, apologize and make restitution for it and do better next time. Because vows matter to God. What we say matters to God. I think that is overall, when you look at this kind of challenging passage with all of its nuances, I think that's what he's saying to all of us. Let's keep our commitments to other people. Even when other people don't keep their commitments to us. Why in the world would we do that? Because of the gospel. Because God keeps his commitments to us. Even when we don't keep our commitments to him. Right? We're not motivated by. Because you did your part, I do my part. Although some legal contracts allow for that. So I'm not saying you don't follow your legal contract. But the, the, the moral principle behind it is we're going to keep our commitments in a world where people don't keep theirs. Because we're representing a different world, a God who keeps his commitments, even when we didn't keep ours. You know, when God swore to Abraham, he swore by himself. My name's on the line. In the book of Hebrews, we learn that Jesus swears by himself that he will forgive us, that he will die for us. 
When he cries out at the cross, he says, it is finished. Well, unless you don't keep your commitments. I'll forgive you. Well, unless you do a really bad sin. Now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he keeps and demonstrated that he is the word of God. He wants us to keep our commitments. In fact, it's interesting, there's a little idea of this that Paul brings up in 2 Timothy. He says it's a faithful phrase you ought to memorize. He says, this is a faithful saying, Paul says, that you ought to keep in your head all the time. It's a little poem, it's a little ancient hymn. If we died with him, and we died with him when we accept him as our our forgiver and leader, our sins have died with him, then we're going to live with him. We're going to be in eternity with him. We're guaranteed heaven. If we endure, now that we're going to heaven, we're going to reign with him. There's future rewards God gives us for how we keep our word, how we give our inheritance, how we serve other people, how we love other people. If we deny him on earth, don't keep our commitments, don't honor God, he will deny us, meaning he'll deny us those future rewards. doesn't deny us heaven, but he denies us the benefits that come from from being rewarded for letting his spirit run through us. But then he throws in this line. However, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Because the Holy Spirit now lives in you. When you become a Christian, you say, God, I have not kept my commitments to you. I have not committed my commitments to myself. I have not kept my commitments to others. I fall short. And you died on the cross to pay for my inability to keep my word. And God, you keep your word. And because of that, Father, I thank you that your spirit now resides in me. And I want your spirit to flow through me. I catch myself saying things that aren't true. I, I more often than not, go and make it right. I go more often than not, say, you know, if I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. Even if something better came up, I'm going to keep my word. Because God keeps his word. You probably have sacred commitments you've made to God, to yourself. What are those? And what does it look like to allow the gospel? God's committed to forgiving you and to staying true to you to be your motivator. I tell you what it is for us as a church. What are we as a church? What do we do? What are our sacred commitments? Almost 20 years our sacred commitment is we're going to comfortably connect people to God. I've had many people come in over the years and say, listen, uh, we need to do it more uncomfortably. You know, some version of how we need to use a different strategy that makes people feel more uncomfortable so they can know God because that's what works better. We know that's fine. Some people are doing that. But we are committed to comfortably connecting people to God through the Bible. It'd be a lot easier not to cover Numbers 30. And let me tell you next week, Numbers 31. Let's just skip the verse-by-verse thing. But we've been committed as a vow before God that we're going to be a verse-by-verse Bible-teaching church because we think that God speaks through his word and a community. And through COVID, it's been very difficult to keep community going. We found lots of ways. Uh, for those of us who are watching here, watching around the world, or watching around the United States, you know, we're a big community now, and we're, we're connected through worship, we're connected through the word. But there's also ways we want to be connected one-on-one. So part of the things I mentioned earlier, the women's groups, the men's groups, the family night, the comedy night, there are ways to try and connect us as a community. Not just a place to get music and get information, but a community of growing Christ followers. And part of our commitment is to do that in a certain way. So if you say, hey, Chad, what are the things that Horizon is committing to us? It's this, to help you reach your friends and you be equipped and grow in your family. Some of our commitments are here. We're going to try as best we can to be culturally relevant, to create comfortable ways for people to grow, to do things not with perfection but with excellence that you feel served well and your friends feel served well and your family does. We're going to try and create environments for children and for students and for you that are age-appropriate teaching 
and contextualizing of those truths from the Bible in your life. Whether you're at our exploring service or at our equipping service, you're going to hear challenging Bible teaching that you've never heard before applied to your life. This is a place where everybody helps out. Everybody says, hey, listen, somebody has served me well. How can I serve someone else well? As you saw in the video earlier, my life's been transformed in baptism. How can I help somebody else have their life transformed? How can I multiply the impact? If somebody invested in me so I could come to know Jesus, how can I invest in somebody who might come to know Jesus? I don't know what part of that you are committed to and what part you haven't yet committed to. I would just say this, join us. By saying, God, I want to be part of what you're doing here at our church. And I want to be a place that whether it's in my marriage, in my business life, with my kids, with my parents, with everything goes on, I want people to know they can trust me and I'm dependable. I want my yes to mean yes and my no to mean no. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the faithful one. God, that we can lean on and have confidence in your word because you are trustworthy. And may we be living examples in our community and in our family and in our companies what it looks like to be people who keep our word and admit and apologize when we don't because we're demonstrating and reflecting the character of our Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week and be prepared for next week's topic. See you then.